0: You're listening to episode 162 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones.
1: And I'm Steph McKenna.
0: It is the 3rd of September 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. It's somehow September, Steph.
1: I know, it's absolutely mortifying really, isn't it? This year has flown by.
0: Yeah, it's that ongoing thing of the pandemic making everything feel simultaneously incredibly long and also having everything happen really quick.
1: Yeah, it's completely messed my sense of time. And also the weather is so bad this August that it feels like it's winter already.
0: I know, here in the UK it just forgot to have summer, or at least in the East it certainly did. (laughs) So on the podcast today we have Kate Moss.
1: The Kate Moss.
0: Yeah, the Kate Moss. This is an amazing podcast episode. But first, before we get to that, just a quick couple of mentions. Noiridge, our crime writing festival, is next week.
1: Yes, so our annual crime writing festival takes place next week on the 9th through to the 12th of September in a hybrid online and in-person format. So we've got tons of free events with amazing writers like Megan Abbott, Steph Char and David Peace. And those are completely free for you to sign up and watch online on YouTube at Time That Suits You. And we've also got some amazing workshops happening. So some bite-sized crime writing workshops on everything from writing courtroom scenes and interviews to how to kill your characters with poison. Uh, And our one in-person writing workshop, I believe, is now fully booked. So we've got our online versions left, which will be taking place on Zoom. So, again, you could sign up to those from anywhere in the world and join us to celebrate some fantastic Chrome writing.
0: Talking of courses and online courses, we also still have a few places left for our creative writing online courses. So most of them have sold out, but there's a few places remaining on Start Writing Fiction and our Introduction to Script Writing course. So if either of those sound like your kind of thing, do make sure you head over to the website and sign up. So for those, you can go to the nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk website. And for everything Noirage related, head to noirage.co.uk. And that's N-O-I-R-W-I-C-H.
1: It's a pun, not a spelling mistake.
0: On to today's episode. Yeah, we're very lucky to have Kate Moss on talking about all kinds of things. And this is kind of one of those perfect matches of interviewee and interviewer because we also have Sarah Bauer back on the podcast asking the questions. We've obviously worked with Sarah in all kinds of capacities over the years. And Sarah is also an author herself and is kind of perfectly placed to be the person to talk to Kate Moss.
1: Sarah Bauer is probably one of my most favourite people on planet Earth and she's a fantastic interviewer as well. So I am really looking forward to listening to this.
0: Yeah, it covers a huge amount of ground. So obviously there's a lot of discussion about the Women's Prize, both in terms of where it is now and how it started and how the context of it is so different in 2021 compared to the mid 90s when it began. They talk about the Discoveries program, which is their writer development program. And in fact, that's opening up again for applications this month. So give the podcast a listen and then head over to the Women's Prize website for full details on all of that. And of course, Sarah and Kate also talk about. Kate's work so Kate kind of exploded onto the scene with Labyrinth back in 2005 and talk about that as well as her latest book which is an extra pair of hands which came out this year and is a memoir they talk about researching historical fiction it's yeah an amazing hour of your time
2: Kate, thank you so much for finding the time to do this for us. We appreciate it enormously. I know you're a a very busy woman with all your commitments.
3: Pleasure to be here, though.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to begin with the Women's Prize, which has been celebrating its 25th anniversary, and the Discoveries Programme. And I wondered if you could maybe begin by telling us a bit about what the thinking was behind setting up the Discoveries programme and perhaps talk a bit about the winner, Emma, whose book sounds fabulous, and, and explain how that book fulfilled those aims.
3: Sure thing. Well, I mean, last year in the pandemic here, it was our 25th anniversary. Yes. Um, <laughs> so like everyone, we uh, were f- uh, obviously thinking about both what we'd achieved in 25 years and the Uh, promotion of extraordinary novels written by women from all over the world um, and what we would have to come in the future. Because obviously um, every prize um, and anything to do with writing and the arts in general is always about moving forward. It's Mm -hmm. not always about looking back, although we should celebrate the past. Um, And so one of the things we felt we wanted to do, and we are now a charity, uh, the Women's Prize Trust, and this is a very important part of it, was to formalize all the work that we've always done with trying to support new writers and helping a much wider range and a more diverse range of people uh, to feel that they have as much right to try and put their stories down as anybody else. And of course, there's always been this issue in publishing that a certain sort of person gets published um, and others sometimes don't feel that their work is taken seriously. And of course, there are many, many people who don't know how to go about getting a book published, if they've even written something, how to get it out there. So we came up with the idea of Discoveries, which has been powered by NatWest and in association with Curtis Brown, the literary agency. And it was absolutely a commitment to reach out beyond the usual channels and say, if you feel that you have a novel in you, uh, share with us 10,000 words of an unpublished piece. You've got to be an unpublished writer. It doesn't matter where you live, how old you are, what you're writing about, how you define, any of these things, but share 10,000 words of a novel that you are wanting to write or trying to write. Um, and we will provide a whole range of support services as well as choosing a winner and a short list of six and a, sh- a long list of 16. And I'm delighted to say that from launching to when we started to do the judging in the spring of of this year, 2021, we had over two and a half thousand entries. Seventy three percent of the entries came from outside London, which was fantastic. Uh, We chose a long list of 16, which is the mirroring of the Women's Prize main prize. And all of those uh, people are being given mentoring by the literary agency, uh, Curtis Brown. Then a short list of six where everybody has a place on a creative writing course and is getting support from uh, agents within the agency. And then we chose our winner, who we announced last month, Emma Van Stratton, um, from her first 10,000 words. And she has already been signed by an agent. Uh, So that, in a nutshell, is what we wanted the Discoveries programme to achieve and where we are after our first year. And we're thrilled with how it's gone it was
2: particularly gratifying that you, you did get entries from outside London and from the sort of population that you were targeting. And also to say, again, um, I'm very much looking forward to Emma's novel being completed because it does sound fabulous.
3: Yes, absolutely. And um, you know, it's, it's a lovely idea and inspired by her own experiences when she's younger, like many people um, of somebody who works as a cleaner um, in, uh, in a, other people's houses of course and and become gets to know the couple rather better than they know themselves <laughs> yes. each other. Uh, so it's it's a wonderful premise and um, and of course she only had to submit 10,000 words so um like we expect I imagine that it will be published probably not till 2023 uh, but that of course is absolutely the point to help new writers get out there yeah uh, because for all of us as readers the wider the range of books available the, the more we all benefit
2: Indeed. Indeed, we do. Um, I I wanted to discuss the Women's Prize more broadly. I I don't know if you heard, but I think one day last week, um, the Radio 4 Front Row programme had a panel discussion which began with the question, where have all the new male writers gone? And its premise was that that, 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 that all aspects of the publishing industry were now dominated by women and do we need... um, things like the Women's Prize anymore. I don't really want to ask that question because I imagine you and I would just agree on the answer and that wouldn't make much of a conversation. But I, if I could phrase it slightly differently, I wonder how you think that the need for and the function of the Women's Prize and its role has changed in the 25 years, 26 years now since it was founded.
3: Yeah, that, that's, that is the right question, I would say. <laughs> Thank um, you. It's because it is, it is a really interesting thing, this, that the Women's Prize is the largest annual celebration of women's voices and creativity in the world. It is uh, one of the world's leading prizes in terms of its exposure, its uh, publicity, its charitable purpose around it. It's uh, rec- you know, how easily recognized it is, um, but also in terms of selling books and it is a success by every single measurement that you could possibly mm. uh, choose to, to put against it. And I, it interests me that nonetheless, every single year, I am still asked to justify why it's around. And I'm afraid this is only because it is about women supporting other women. It is really as simple as that. Nothing else, which is a huge success, is always being asked to justify why it exists, because success is its own evidence. Indeed, if you like yeah. so that 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 is why your question is the right question. <laughs> um, and um, indeed, that that front row panel, I was in, invited to be or uh, part of that panel, but I was actually live on stage elsewhere, so oh, okay. I I didn't have to uh, do that um, because obviously uh, it's just silly because uh, this the statistics that you know it's not is not true mm. uh, but it's the old adage that one woman goes a very long way um, <laughs> if if there are two women in the room and two men in the room uh, men think the women are taking over so you know and and statistically that is proven to be the case yeah. always you know with yeah. a certain amount anyway we 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 won't go down that so um but the prize has of course changed when um we were Dreaming Up the Idea for the Prize, which came from an all-male book shortlist in 1991. Mm. And, uh, and that's fine because the judges are allowed to choose, of course, the books that they most believe fulfill the brief of the prize that they're judging. Yeah. But the point was more that nobody noticed there were no women. Mm. And several of us said, can you imagine if they had put out an all-female list? Every single critic would have cried foul. Of course, every critic yes. would have said this is political. This is motivated by yeah. you know this, that, and the other. Nobody would have been would have accepted the idea that these were the pieces of literature that were most valued. But yet, when it was an all male list, it was see, taken uh, as a sort of de facto um, thing that of course this is all bits of literature, and if there are no women there, well, you know, genuinely nobody noticed until the list was put out, um, and so that's where the impetus from the prize came from and it does feed into this rather daft uh, discussion that was going on on Front Row about, uh, you know, where where are all the male novelists, Um, was that when we did the research, we discovered that even then, actually, 60% of novels were authored by women and 75% of novels published were bought by women. Mm -hmm. But yet fewer than 9% of novels ever shortlisted for major literary awards were by women. So there wasn't actually an issue about access to market, but there wasn't uh, an issue about the honouring and valuing yes. of women's writing as literature.
2: It's a very stark set of figures, actually, which I, I was I was unaware of. Yes. I've never yes. seen it phrased that way before. But yeah.
3: You know, so, I mean, it, it was really very straightforward. So we said, well, OK, this is actually about women's work being honoured and uh, honouring matters because prizes keep books of quality on the shelf. Uh, there's a very quick turnover with publishing these days. Uh, there is an over-obsession with the new shiny, bright thing, um, often only with youth, uh, and it, you know which is, is good in one way, but actually a piece of work is a piece of work, and it shouldn't matter whether you're 80 or 18. Um, and so all of these things. So we wanted to draw attention to women's writing as part of the literary canon, if you like. Um, and that's where we came from. In those days when I would uh, talk... Uh, it's it's good to be reminded of this. Fourth wave feminism had not happened. So there was not a discussion about uh, this as a, a matter, of course, about gender, about representation, about who was being left out, about diversity. None of these conversations were live. There was still the kind of, what I always think of um, kind of swill at the bottom of a boat, water. <laughs> uh, that, you know, if you like, the idea that, Well, if women weren't winning prizes, it's because, you know what, they're just not good enough. So that was the context within which I was making all the speeches about the prize. And every single interview that I did back in uh, 1995, 96, when we'd just got the funding, and we were about to start the first prize. um, People behaved as if we were talking about all female uh, shortlist for the Labour Party. Uh, There was an active determination to do two things. One that we were all angry. And I kept saying, we're not angry, we're doing something positive. This is about positively promoting exceptional writing by women. I don't understand why you have a problem with that. Um, And the other one was that that very insidious subtext, which is women are a second rate and that's why they don't get shortlisted. Um, And so that was our focus to kind of change that narrative. Over the past 25 years, there has been a resurgence in feminism Um, It's a different sort of feminism. It's more inclusive. Um, It involves uh, men and women um, as as well. It involves um, the acknowledgement that there are structures and systems that actively discriminate against certain groups of people and and to the benefit of others. Um, And so that narrative, if you like, the context within which we're working has changed quite significantly. We always had a sense of um, charitable purpose, even though we were not a charity at that moment, which was to every year, alongside the razzmatazz of the main prize, to be funding research into figures about gender and reading and writing and opportunities and reviewing. We always had educational projects, which could be First, you know, reading groups for boys at key stage three in schools was one of our first uh, projects because there's a drop off in boys reading at about the age of 13, Um, you know, and that's obviously very important uh, to to look into why that is and, you know, all of those sorts of things. We did uh, reading groups in prisons and in workplaces, a range of activities. As time has gone on, um, I suppose, in a way, our focus has been uh, in that area, in the charitable sector area, has been very much on empowerment of new writing, uh, encouraging girls and women, wherever they come from, to feel that they have the right to put their story down on paper and speak for themselves. Uh, There's also, I suppose, we have moved into a more modern uh, way of working in that we now have a family of sponsors rather than one headline sponsor, which means we have partnerships and are very much involved in taking reading and books into areas outside of books in the arts. So partnerships one year with Whistles, for example, um, or particular women's magazines or the Albright uh, Club in London. And this is all, again, about trying to reach out beyond the usual writing and reading community to engage with anyone who wants to read a brilliant book. Um, and so that, I think, is really the the biggest change, that it is absolutely that sense of being a year round program, putting together a library of writing by women, advice for writers, advice about how to get people started, uh, a diversity of voice and really positioning ourselves, if you like, as a one stop shop. If you want to know about writing by women, go to the Women's Prize website, join one of our events um, and pretty much anything you might want, you'll find there
2: wonderful account of, of everything the, the, the prize does. And I, and I think a lot of our listeners will be unaware of the sort of background educational work um, that you described there, Kate, with uh, prisoners and, and, and with schoolboys at that difficult age when they stop reading, um, which I'm personally very interested in as the mother of two sons and three three grandsons. That's a lot of boys. It is very interesting to hear about all that and very gratifying. And another perhaps small to my mind, significant thing when you were talking about wanting to work with a, a range of sponsors rather than having the big headline, you know, the, the, as with Orange, famously, of course. Yes. Of um, course. Isn't it nice that it can be called the Women's Prize?
3: Well, the thing about that is, as well, that when we, you know, when we were having conversations right at the beginning, we were, at, when we were instituting ourselves, called the Women's Prize. And then our first sponsor, Orange, th- this was the days of that kind of sponsorship, which w- w- is usually known as badging. Um, but also um, calling it the Women's Prize would have been a, a negative thing at that moment in, in the yeah, mid-90s. Good point. Yeah. It would have been seen as an excluding name rather than simply saying what it is. Um, because the point about the Women's Prize, it's honoring and celebrating and amplifying women's voices for the benefit of everybody. It's women's writing for everybody. And we've always been reader focused rather than writer focused. So um, the goal was never to have a sense of a little closed shop and everybody patting each other on the back. It was absolutely about speaking to readers and getting exceptional books into the hands of women and men who would appreciate them. So, but it is great to go back to being called the Women's Prize for Fiction um, because it is, there's just a clarity obviously in that. Um, interestingly enough, Uh, One of the things that um, I've enjoyed very much over the years is, and and it's kind of almost counterintuitive, but it's true, which is this, that because everybody on the long list of 16 and then the short list of six, and of course the winner, is a woman, the one metric that you cannot bring to bear, the one judgment that gets thrown out the window, is the fact that it's a book by a woman.
2: Um, Yes, of course. yeah, Yeah, which
3: is really important because it actually... Ironically, liberates the artists to be artists, and you know. And when you look at the coverage of other prizes, particularly back in the 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 bad old days of the 90s, you know, so called post feminism and uh, post Thatcherism, and all that period of time, um, you would see when a woman was uh, nominated for the Costa or the Booker, quite often it would be the woman on the list. Dot, dot, dot.
0: <laughs> you know, the as if woman, yes. she
3: was there for all of us. Uh, Whereas the men were themselves. And I think that's very important because male writers, female writers, writers of colour, writers of different class, whatever, however people feel is most important to define themselves. They every artist wants to simply be judged for their art. Absolutely. Um, You know, so this is a a strange uh, counterintuitive thing about the Women's Prize that it strips away being judged as a woman. Once you're in it, you're in it.
2: You know. Yes, I, I, I take that. Yes, I, yeah. I should I should kind of backtrack on what I said because you've come at it from another angle and enlightened me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is very good. Um, before we move on, looking to the future, which um, obviously you are doing, there's a, a, a couple of things. Um, we hear a lot now about how it is increasingly difficult for writers to make a living as writers. I know the the, the Society of Authors publishes bleak figures every year about what the average earnings are. The big fiction prizes, of which the Women's Prize, I would say, is now definitely one of the big three with the Booker and the Costa, obviously attracts good prize money, as it should. And as you've already mentioned, it, it, it helps with sales and the longevity of books. But I wonder how you see the function of a prize like the Women's Prize trickling down to the many other writers there are, whether men or women, who are not earning in that way, who are not the stars, but are very good um, and accomplished writers who struggle in the world that we're in now. We, I, I, people draw analogies with the music industry and how it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to make money out of their music. And I think there are perhaps some similarities to be exploited there. I just wonder how you see that and how you see the role of your
3: organisation. Well, I think I have two totally different answers to this. Um, And I'm speaking as myself here and not on behalf of the Women's Prize in the first instance, is that I am nearly 60. And I am therefore of the age that it never occurred to me that being a novelist would be... How I earned my living Mm. never occurred to me. Um, It was, and I actually don't know anybody that thought that. Uh, We all wrote our books doing other things. You know, people were teachers, they were booksellers, they might be doctors, they could be, uh, you know, accountants, they could be nurses, you know, whatever. But actually, almost everybody I know um, supplemented their income and was writing because they really wanted to. Nobody I ever met and interviewed, having you know done a lot of years of interviewing, said, oh, yes, I always decided I wanted to be a novelist and therefore I was going to sit down and write and hope that I made a living. Now, I think it's really good that the discussions about that are happening because there is always, particularly with fiction, the idea that it is a lady sitting in a room, you know, with the, with the Brontes and Jane Austen and the quill scratching um, on beautiful... <laughs> parchmenty paper, um, and all of these things, and that it's kind of a hobby. So I think it's very, very, very important, this idea that um, everybody should be paid for their expertise. Uh, On the other hand, it's exactly the same as it is the world of theatre. It is very, very, very hard to make enough money from the sales of books to survive as a writer. Um, So in an odd sort of way, it's about the individual has to make that choice um, in the same way that every actor that I know um, has a resting job. Nobody thinks twice about it. And then if they hit the big time, then they don't need a resting job anymore. But every single actor I've ever met um, has started, you know, they're doing this, but they're doing this in their spare time. And so it's, you know, I mean, that's what I said. There's two different answers. I'm in two minds. There's always been something about the arts, which is, about making it possible for you to do the thing that you love, and there's the logical part of me that thinks that absolutely it should be paid enough and you should be able to make a living and decide to be a writer like you do decide to be a um, a surveyor and you know when you train and you do these things and there's a, a salary, but writing is never going to be salaried no it it never is going to be salaried so it's um I think it's very very complicated, and I think the difficulty is I think that the huge proliferation in creative writing courses is terrific because that is about access and it's about the acknowledgement that you could be enormously imaginative and enormously inspired and hugely creative, but there are building blocks of how you write that anybody can be taught. Nobody expects to give a child who is musical a violin and a bow and say, well, off you go. Because basic technique liberates your imagination and your creativity. You can decide to do nothing you've been taught but you've got the building blocks in place. So I, I'm a huge supporter of creative writing uh, courses. And I also think that uh, what they do is allow people to take themselves seriously as writers, that they are investing in themselves. And that is very important for women and for people um, who have come from communities that have not been published as much um, as other communities. So to say that, yes, you you deserve this time, give yourself the time and to take it seriously. but the flip side of that is that I think a lot of people go on to creative writing courses. Everybody thinks they're going to be signed and published. Yes. And, and, and you, you will understand all of this. Um, and there's simply not enough room. That every year, you know, sometimes I think last year I looked in the books, so there was something like 600,000 books published.
2: It, it's phenomenal, isn't it? it, it English yeah. language publishing is just yes. phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's
3: great, but in the old days, <laughs> There were, you know, there might have been a couple of hundred books published during the course of a year. And so the readership does grow, but it doesn't grow that much. So in in a way, the book sales in terms of the income generated, you know, goes up and all of these things. But it's divided amongst many, 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 many more authors. And so that is the conundrum at the heart of this.
2: There is also the the added complication of of the numbers of different ways now in which people do their reading, because as well as as, as books as as we understand them, there are the number of people blogging, doing online serialisation, zines and online magazines and things like that, so that so that people are accessing their reading in so many different ways, which complicates. The market for fiction even further. I yes, would it just. yes, yeah. because
3: obviously, um, as always, within any um, industry, particularly the creative industries, the people who, you know with notable exceptions, make the money are the producers, essentially, whether they're called publishers in our industry or producers in the music industry or in the theater industry. Um, it, it's the people who allegedly, as it were, take the risk. Financial risk and the outlay that, that get the biggest rewards, and there's no doubt that there's a there's a whole school of thought about self-publishing that more goes to the author and and all of these things. And of course, everybody, it is. I, I do think it's wonderful that more and more people can find a way to get their work out into the world. It's, I suppose, it's just that I think, um, you know, that uh, expectations are raised too high.
2: Uh, uh, yes, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, you know, and it's the
3: same that every year in this country, three thousand young people leave drama school. Yes. There's not enough jobs for two no. thousand new people a year. Um, you know, So it's the same thing, that there is this real desire from all of these industries to increase access, to get a wider range of people being involved in industries. But at the same time, it raises expectations that simply can't be met. And I think that's some of the issue. I think the Society of Authors, um, which is headed up by Nicola Solomon, does a terrific job in this area around uh, financing of authors, how people do have a portfolio, what different types of things they do, and truthfully, this is one of the reasons that I'm such a, uh, you know, a zealot, if you like, about the importance of prizes, because there are several ways that an author can suddenly find her life transformed or his life transformed, um, and you know, prizes is one of them. If you win a major prize, and that gives the wind beneath your sails. Um, of your book and often then subsequently your backlist. That could be the thing that makes it possible. For me, I had a a moment of extreme luck with a novel that I published called Labyrinth.
2: Indeed, but but not all luck. I think it was justified.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. But I mean, I was 45 at the time. And the idea that I would have a, a global bestseller that would mean that I could give up other work in order to write had never crossed my mind. So the book would have been the same, whatever happened to it. Just for some reason, it turned out to be one of those books. You know, you could say Joanne Harris's Chocolat was one of those books. Or uh, John Boyne, you know, The the Boy the Striped Pyjamas. You know, there there, there are certain books. And for most of us, we still, I I still pinch myself. I I think, good Lord, I I earn a living as a writer um, and support a family as a writer. Now, that is not what I expected, and I was middle-aged when it happened, which is good because you you know it's, you do know that there's an element of luck. And I think it's accepting all of these things. But, you know, anybody who is published, um, I would absolutely recommend being part of the Society of Authors because I think their level of advice and the way in which to negotiate little things, like we all go to literary festivals, um, I think, you know, it's very important. I always ask if we're all being paid the same, yeah. for example. Because I don't think that big authors should be paid more or foreign authors should be paid less or what, whatever it is. I think you you enter into it in the spirit of being part of something. Um, but in the past, there were lots of uh, occasions where you would discover that some people were being enticed, as it were, to come uh, with being offered much bigger fees than other people. And, of course, the people who are offered the smallest fees are usually the ones that most need it because at the beginning of their careers. So um, all of these things, I think all of us can support the ecology of publishing, and you can always choose to gift back your fee, but I would also say it is very, very important, a lot of the income many authors have is from talks, going to festivals, talking in bookshops and all of these things, and it is important to ask what the fee is, because yes, of if, course, yeah. if you don't, then they don't think they need to offer it to somebody else.
2: So no, they, yeah. they, they they will try us on, won't they? Sometimes, getting, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, and, and you know, and if everybody else who's working
3: on yeah. a festival is being paid, then the author should be, yes, the creative indeed. person yeah. should be. So I think it's about all of these things are about as well looking after each other, yeah. And within the women's prize, this is why we pay our judges, this is why we pay our panelists, uh, this is why we offer, you know. Cover all, obviously, all transport costs and childcare costs that people wanted, all of these things. Mm. And often people don't want to take those things and other that they do. But for us as a women's organization, making it possible for any woman, whatever her circumstance or responsibilities, to be able to engage. Matters enormously, and it is up to all of us. And within the Women's Prize, we feel this very strongly. You have to lead by example. Yeah. You know, if you want things to change and have more women having access to these spaces, then you have to make that change happen, and that often means raising more money in order to pay for things.
2: Indeed, but i i I like the I like very much that that breadth of thinking about about what what is entailed, what it actually costs to write a book, (laughs) Um, and particularly, as you say. It it leads me um, rather nicely, if you'll forgive, perhaps a slightly clumsy segue to um, your own most recent writing. And as I said, I did want to talk to you a bit about An Extra Pair of Hands, which I did love reading. Thank you. And is for listeners who haven't read it. Um, It's partly a delightful memoir of the older generation of your family, But it is also partly a book very much about the difficulties that mostly women face in becoming carers and also being in that sandwich. I know by the time your older relatives were in need of care, your children were quite grown up, but you have this on either side and still you you write beautifully about, you you know, also trying to write a novel at the same time as various things were happening with your family. Um, And I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the book, but my specific question, I suppose, is it's not an overtly campaigning book, but it does have a lot to say about caring responsibilities and the different roles of society and family in those caring responsibilities. And I just wondered... If you'd seen yourself as a campaigner, as a social campaigner when writing it, if you see that as a role for writers or whether your main motive factor was to write as beautifully and affectionately as you did about your parents and your mother-in-law.
3: Well, thank you, Sarah. That That's really lovely. I think it's the best book I've written. Um, I'm very proud of it. It's called An Extra Pair of Hands. And it is uh, my story um, about being a carer on and off for the past 12 years. Mm. And I wrote it because the Wellcome Trust approached me and asked me to write it. Uh, they have a series called Lives and Letters, which is about people who are not experts in an area, um, but who have direct and live experience of something, uh, writing about key issues of contemporary social care, health uh, medical policy all of this kind of thing and I don't think I would have written it if it hadn't been the Welcome Trust um, because I'm not a memorist and I don't tend to put myself on the page in that sort of way um, but it is a love letter to my m- wonderful mum and my wonderful father and uh, who are both gone now and my amazing mother-in-law Granny Rosie the legendary Granny Rosie. <laughs> Um, who is a, a stone's throw away from from where I am at the moment? I, I'm glad because I, I felt
2: I felt I had to inquire after her, given some of the things that are described in there, to make sure that she was all right. Well,
3: she is <laughs> she is ninety, um, and uh, as all ninety, and she is in a wheelchair, and I am a full time carer. Um, for, for Gunny Rosie and she of course has some good days and some not so good days but she does love the sun uh, so she is at the moment sitting I can see her she is sitting half in and half out of the sun with a big straw hat on and a gin and tonic Excellent. Um, and there's, you know <laughs> why not so if you're 90 you can do what you want
2: I, I think you can drink gin any time of day exactly, when you're 90 Yeah, exactly
3: yep. that's that's uh, that's the thing so um so for me writing the book was in a way, it's exactly fits with all of the campaigning work I've done for all of my adult life um, around women's voices and women's representation. I've I'm some, always been a positive campaigner. And what I mean by that is about talking about what we could do and the great things that are out there rather than complaining um, or attacking. I don't feel, for me, that's not the most effective way to... Um, to bring about change. And in this area, social care is a, it's a feminist issue, care, and it is the biggest issue along with climate change facing us as a society. And because um, it is not considered sexy, uh, this can of how to sort out social care can, keeps being kicked down the road. So the book is a campaigning book, in, but insofar as I am simply adding my voice to the 13 million of us who are unpaid carers. And I felt, well, if I have a voice in a platform, then I should use it uh, because I am in a very fortunate position. I'm a writer. Uh, my husband um, is a playwright and a writer. We therefore have a level of flexibility in our working lives. Many people who are carers have to give up work in order to care. So what happens to their family finances? Many people are sole carers. They're on their own. They don't have any support. Uh, we live in Sussex and we have a house with space. So we could have my parents and my mother-in-law living with us. Um, and that was all possible. My sisters both live in neighboring villages. Uh, my brother-in-law lives with us at the moment. One of my nieces lives with us at the moment. So there are there's a huge, I have a huge support network. Many people have absolutely nobody. Um, they are often caring for a partner. So you have 80 year olds caring for 85, six year olds. And there are many people who are caring for uh, siblings, children with special needs. Um, and particularly in the last year with the pandemic, where all of those services stopped, we are essentially asked a huge amount of our carers and we don't care about our carers. And the Dilnock Commission was set up in 2010 to look into social care. It reported in 2011 its recommendations were in the Queen's speech in 2015 and they were election promises in 2017 and 19. Indeed there were, yes. And yet nothing has happened. Yeah. Now, it would be glib to say that it's because the majority of people making policy are not carers, but I'm afraid there is a truth in that. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that families should not uh, want to care for their relatives Um I, it's a great privilege for me. I loved my parents. They were amazing people. And I love Granny Rosie. And it's a privilege to be able to care, even though it can be a pretty tough gig. For many people, they are caring for relatives. They don't even know, you know, a stepfather that married their mother and, you know. um, So we need to have a system that supports those who need support. And it's not happening and it's not being prioritized. And I'm afraid, you know, there are almost no women in the room Um, And consequently, it's not ever seen as important um, and it's not being grappled with. So the book is about, you know, literature and poems and books and the solace of the landscape and what it means to love somebody, what it means to be with somebody when they die, uh, what it means to be human, you know, all of these things. But at the same time, underneath it, there is a sense of we all need as a society to say, a good society is a society who cares for the people who need it most. And we are not showing ourselves to be that society in so very many ways at the moment. Um, and therefore, the book to me, therefore, is very, uh, very important. And I'm, I'm delighted with the reaction to it. I, I've never had so many letters and emails and comments, uh, not, not even for the biggest selling of my novels. Have I had so much engagement from readers so um, and it's not a book just for people who are carers um, it's a book for anybody who thinks about these things or um, has a family I suppose and uh, because a woman has a 50-50 chance of being a carer by the time she's fifty nine which is the age I am now obviously my my experience started a lot earlier um, so it almost everybody, however they are at the moment will come up against this at some moment so you know.
2: Well, I, I'm glad. I'm glad it's had such a, a great response. I've been recommending it to anybody who would listen since I read it. <laughs> and um, as you. you say, I, I think um, it, clearly you, you and I are, are of, of a similar generation, and this is a, um, a, 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 an issue which preoccupies one again as you say it is a feminist issue it's nearly always women who do it so i I really hope that masses of people will read it not only because it's a lovely book but because of of what it has to say um kate we obviously cannot end this conversation without talking about your extraordinary record as a writer of great historical novels (laughs) um and i have also been lucky enough um while I was, as you might have gathered, while I was reading An Extra Pair of Hands, I was reading The City of Tears at the same time. Wow. Which was kind of a strange experience because I was kind yes. of reading both the book and some subliminal commentary on it. Um, in, yes. in the, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and again, I mean, a, a, a wonderful, big, sweeping historical book. And I would like to. A, a couple of things that, that, that came over to me very powerful in it are. It it is very strongly in favour of religious tolerance and cultural tolerance and the compassionate treatment of people seeking asylum. Yes. Um, And I just wonder how you see the historical fiction as speaking to our own times.
3: Yes, I think um, there's a sort of conundrum at the heart of historical fiction, which is this, that good historical fiction, by which I mean... um, Historical fiction that has integrity, so it genuinely belongs in its time. It is accurate insofar as we can be ever sure of these things to the history, uh, that it doesn't um, distort the experiences of real people. Obviously, at the heart of my historical fiction are women's stories that are mostly left out of the history books. Um, You know, in the period of time I'm writing about the 16th century, you could be forgiven that. Of thinking, for thinking there were about three women, yes. Isabella of <laughs> <laughs> Catherine de' Medici and Elizabeth I, and, and that was it. They were the only women. Um, and, you know, history as a discipline was very much out of the universities and out of the um, religious institutions, and therefore it was written by men about men. And so for me, that's been very important, uh, centering all of my fiction around women's stories. Um, and good historical fiction, therefore, tells the truth it puts the people back into history that have been left out. Whether it's people of color, whether it's people of disabilities, you know, because actually, almost every other person would have had some sort of uh, physical um, impairment, and you never see this in television and things, That's but a huge thing, isn't it? There's yeah, some
2: small yeah. things like nobody would have had a decent set of teeth. Nobody that- would have had any teeth, you know. I mean, yeah.
3: you know, Queen Elizabeth the had wooden. False teeth. She did, didn't she? You know, and they they clacked when she talked. (laughs) Um, And of course they would. And people, you know, um, there were accidents all the time. People lost arms, you know. So all of these things. So it's it's always about trying to, with integrity, put all the people missing back. um, Because a partial view of history is a dangerous view of history. And we know that when we see people using history in order to justify discrimination and prejudice in our own times. But it's very, very important that it is set within the period in which it's supposed to be set. Yes. So you cannot put 21st century ideas into a novel of the 16th century. You've got to believe and trust that the reader hears the echoes for herself or for himself. And that is one of the things that I feel really strongly about with the uh, Burning Chamber series. The City of Tears is the second in a series of four is that I love the fact, and this is true history, that little Netherlands, Holland, and it, the other surrounding states, the lowlands as they were often known, because Belgium you know, was, was, broke away in the end and became Belgium much later on. They became a world superpower in the 17th and 18th century because they took in refugees from France. It is actually almost as simple as that. The, the, the Huguenot refugees uh, were given, um, you know, refuge, and of course that's where the word comes from, refugee, um, in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam became this great world city, tiny little country. So I don't need to uh, make some heavy-handed political point about religious tolerance and judging people by who they are and what they say and how they behave rather than the colour of their skin or what they look like or what faith they, they follow or none because the evidence is there that countries that op- are open-armed and welcome do better than the ones that shut their borders. Uh, and, you know, it's it's just in in, Euro- in European terms, in the period of time I'm, I'm talking about, obviously. So I do feel very strongly about um, history as a way of telling us who we are, as a way of holding up a mirror to the present. But everything must be what... The reader brings to the book and the reading of the book, um, not shoehorning those things in. And I think you can see that the historical fiction people enjoy is precisely that, that it's very much, you know, whether it's Hilary Mantel or or me or Ken Follett or S.J. Paris, uh, you know, any of these books, they, they very much inhabit a particular granular world that any of us attempt to bring to life. But readers bring their own sensibility to the books. And for me, you know, it's one of the reasons it's been very frustrating this year. Publishing two books in lockdown. Yeah. The thing I love most about publishing is being out and about and meeting readers because the reader completes the book. And you know, I've not been able to meet any readers. I've done about three events. Um, everything else has been by email, and that's been great, of course. And you know, these are the times, and these are tiny things compared to what most people have had to go through. But um, but I, I do I do believe in that. You know, trust your reader. Understand that your reader gets it, you know they 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 can see the echoes of the past in the present in the same way that I, as the writer, can.
2: I, I should also I th- I think uh, ask you to speak briefly to the issue of research for historical fiction. Um, I, I, I think to some extent you, you you've covered what the outcomes of that should be, the way in which you. You must stay faithful to the world and recreate that world as best you can, without glaring anachronism and and what have you. But um, I wonder, speaking perhaps to anybody who will be listening to this, who is a, a historical novelist or aspiring historical novelist, if you've got any any tips about the research it, 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 when one starts a historical project, it 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 feels absolutely insurmountable to begin with, and you you Know you have to work your way through all these masses of material and what have you. I wonder how you go about that and whether you enjoy it and what your sort of system is if it's not giving too much away.
3: <laughs> I love it, I love the research. I'm at the beginning of a big new non fiction project at the moment, um, and the research for that is um, no different in a way from the research mm. that I do for my historical fiction um, because it is about finding your way in to another time, a different kind of life, a different person's experience. And that, for me, is what research is all about. And I do all my research pretty much before I start, whereas many historical fiction writers, um, they kind of start, they have an idea for the story, so they start and then research the things they need as they go along. Uh But for me, I need to build the entire world of the novel or the entire world of the nonfiction book as it is at the moment, because I need to feel that I I have a 360 degree understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. I need to know in the 16th century, did the Huguenots have beards and moustaches or just moustaches? Did the Catholics have curled hair or straight hair? Did they wear, you know, because when I'm writing I want everything to go into the momentum of the writing the style of the writing, the excitement of the plot. I don't want to constantly be stopping to think, oh, I I don't know quite how to write that character because would they have done this? Would they have done that? And the thing that matters about research in terms of those details are, if you've got a lead character in the City of Tears, for example, is Minu and her daughter Marta. Um, Minu is running away from soldiers. Well, can she run? What's she got on her feet? Yes. You know, is she wearing shoes with buckles? Do they have heels? Are they wooden soles? And so, everything about those details, they're not there to show the reader how jolly clever you've been with all your research. They're there to show the reader how that flight, how that escape, how that scene would work. Because if your reader can't trust you to get those details right, why do they trust you with their emotions? Why do they invest in the characters? So for me, I do what I always call a mixture of head research and heart research. The head research is libraries, archives, museums, books, uh, reading the history of the period, uh, looking at details. At the moment, the spine of my nonfiction book is part of my family history from the 19th and early 20th century. So looking at uh, family trees and uh, documents and all of these things. And the heart research is being there because all of my inspiration comes from place, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, and where something is set is the very first thing I need to know even before I have characters. Um, it's always place with me. And so I've just come back from a couple of days in the Lake District because I needed to stand where my great-grandmother had stood yes. and think, okay, I, I know how to tell this story now. So... That's how I do it. Many other people, um, wonderful writer, uh, Tracy Chevalier, who of Mm -hmm. course, everybody will know very well, particularly um, here. um, She told me once when I was interviewing her that she, when she started her novel, Girl with a Pearl Earring, at the end of the first day, she had a paragraph or two of the novel, which is not far off the first page of the novel, which is an amazing thing, but four pages of things to go and check. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Whereas I, before I start, have got two or three box folders of notes and maps and pictures and all the rest of it. And then, but when I start writing, I just go for it.
2: And uh, do you then set that aside, and you don't come back to it That's until right. it's time to do an edit and to check exactly. that you
3: exactly right? Kate, um, do
2: you do all your own research, or do you ever use researchers? Do you like to do it all hands-on? Or, or... I, I do it
3: all myself yeah. because for me, quite often. Uh, the story, the motivation, the plot uh the texture comes from things that I find out um and you know that so that for me, it's not ever a question of saying to somebody even with the wars of religion, saying, "Please could you go and find out when the third war of religion started or finished because I can find that out these days, there's no excuse, frankly. Um, for not being able to find out the basic dates. No, that sort of thing
2: you can get fairly easily, can't you? Yeah, you you really
3: can now. I mean, never trust the internet without verifying it in many other ways. But, you know, as a basic, you know, we we are enormously uh, lucky these days for that kind of research. Um, And I do have a lot of people who do use researchers. Um, My husband does absolutely often help me. And with my Big Women in History project that I launched at the beginning of the year, my niece and my daughter both were very, very helpful with verifying Dates of women's biographies and things like that. So, I, I do absolutely rely on other people to help with verification mostly. But I've never ever said, Could you please go and find out X? Because I don't know what X is until I'm paddling around in the archives myself.
2: Yes. And there's something about archive materials that actually come from the period. There's the oh, sort of physicality of them, which you don't get if you ask somebody else to do it for you.
3: That's so right. And it's what the great Neil McGregor, uh, you know, a, polymath and uh, former director of uh, the British Museum and of course now um, sorting everything out in in German museums. Um, But he calls it the charisma of things. Mm, Um, That's a lovely expression. Yeah and I've been reading a lot of um, old books uh, from the 19th century and it's just when you hold an old book in your hand and you think of all the people who've held this book before you, um, that is part of research. You can't there's no shortcut for that, for me, for the way I write. But for people listening, you know, everything about writing is find out what suits you. And then insofar as your day to day life allows you, try to work like that. You know, most of us start off writing in the very early mornings, the evenings after the children have gone to bed or you have come home from work or whatever your responsibilities are. Um, if you get to the point of being a full time writer, then obviously you can pick your time and and you're freer. But it's always about what suits you, what do you need to access that thing in you, that creative part of you, that story you want to tell, the voice you want to uh isolate and and put down on the page. And I I always say this to people, I say there's no tricks. There, there you know, it's it's just there's there's no shortcut for doing it. You just there have isn't to do no. it. <laughs> Just do it. Just write it. And too many people spend a long time reworking. And this brings us neatly back to discoveries, which is a lot of writers at the beginning of their writing careers, however old they are, and however much experience they have had in different ways, different courses, or maybe they worked in publishing or book selling or printing or whatever it is. um, It's very tempting to just think that it's got to be perfect first time so that you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite the first three chapters and you never finish the book. Whereas my advice is get a first draft down, just keep going, don't lose heart, just get a whole thing down and think of it like this. You know, you cannot decide how to decorate your house until you've got all four walls and a roof. And the first draft is that. Once you've got it down, you go, oh, I see it's that kind of book. With The City of Tears, I knew that it was set against the backdrop of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. I knew it was going to finish with the crowning of uh, Henri IV in 1594, but I didn't know what the story of my family was going to be. I just knew the real history that it was going to be set against. And it was only when I started writing, I thought, oh no, it's a lost child story.
2: That's interesting. So that, so although you had the historical framework, you, you didn't know how Minou's family were going to progress through it until you started working. Nope. on them.
3: and I didn't know who was going to survive the massacre. I didn't know who was make, going to make it out to Amsterdam. I didn't know who was going to be there in Chartres Cathedral in 1594, witnessing the coronation. Um, but for me, I need that adrenaline of excitement and discovery as I'm writing because I feel that my readers want that adrenaline of, of, of excitement on the page. And I think it's very easy to overthink um, and talk away the story when actually it's better to keep it safe, keep it close to yourself and get it down on the page for a first draft. And then obviously the real work begins with the second draft and the third draft and the editing and everything. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting to hear that. Um, uh, and I I think that the people listening to this will respond very warmly to what you said, very sound and helpful remarks, Kate. Thank you so much for your time and, and, and your wisdom. It's been wonderful talking to you.
3: That felt very, um, very enjoyable, Sarah.
2: Good. Well, thank you. It was, it was a great pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you so much
0: thanks for listening and huge thanks to Kate and Sarah for that amazing conversation. If you have questions about this or anything else to do with writing, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre, check out our Facebook page or head over to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk where you'll also find links to join our weekly newsletter and our free Discord community.
1: As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on our website by going to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and visiting the Support Us page.
0: Please do let your friends know about the podcast if you have any writer friends you think might be interested and leave us a review because it does help other people to find the pod. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you next week.